you please open your Bible to Romans chapter 13? And I will open in a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you for those throughout history who have been faithful in preserving uh, the word. Thank you that we have it in uh, our language. That's a wonderful privilege. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand uh, the word. We, we ask for the gift of illumination this morning. Uh, but please help us to not only understand, but help us to apply uh, the word that you have for us this day. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Oh, last month, a fire inspector was stabbed in the back by a maniac at the New York subway. Uh, thankfully, this was not fatal. Uh, but as this fire inspector, who is Nigerian, was interviewed, the thing that he found most distressing is that nobody come to his aid. There were many bystanders, and yet no one helped. Many walked past him, many witnessed it happen, and no one offered assistance. Now, this was inconceivable and unexplainable for this man. He said, American people don't care about others. It would have been very different in my home country. And this is certainly not an isolated story. In fact, psychologists have developed a, a term that they call it the bystander effect. And, and that means someone witnesses harm being done yet does nothing to help or stop a harmful activity. And I'm sure we have all had times in our lives where we were the victim of the bystander effect, and other times we were the perpetrator. Probably not in the extreme case, like I mentioned just now, and yet I'm sure there has been times where we desperately needed help, but people walked straight past us. Or you have seen somebody else that needed assistance, but you ignored it and kept going. About a month ago, I was doing the groceries. It was very busy, as it normally is in Woolworths Reesby. And this poor old lady, she had managed to knock lots of stuff off the shelf. I'm not sure how she did it, but she was trying to fix it and she was really struggling. And there was at least 10 people went past her and not one of them offered her any assistance. You know, we live in a time where loving our neighbor is a rare commodity, and it seems to be becoming rarer. Being kind, caring, and helpful toward others feels like a species that's almost extinct. And hence, as Christians, this gives you and I a wonderful opportunity to be countercultural and to illustrate and to demonstrate the love of Christ in how we treat others. Okay, this is the message. Of our text. This is the next sphere of life that is to be shaped by the gospel. You know, we've considered how the gospel governs and impacts how we relate to one another in the church. Last week we saw how the gospel shapes and impacts how we relate to those in authority, particularly the government. And now the focus zooms out and we discover how the gospel is to shape and govern the way we treat those we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. Okay, this is the big idea of the text. And how I want to unpack 
Okay, this teaching on gospel-shaped and governed love for our neighbours is by considering one observation, two consequences, and three commands. Okay, this will lay the foundations which will give us a solid base to launch into practical application. So let's begin with one observation. Now, there are certain verses and phrases within verses in the Bible that if we consider in isolation can cause us to jump to conclusions that are not in harmony with the rest of Scripture. And verse 8 contains one such phrase. It says, Owe no man anything. Okay, so question, is this a prohibition against debt? Okay, is the Bible teaching that we shouldn't have mortgages, car loans, hex debt, business loans? Okay, if this is the case, this indicts most of us, doesn't it? Because the majority of us have had debt, are in debt, or will one day be in debt. So what are we to make of this? Is everybody with a mortgage in sin? We as a church, we have a mortgage. Are we doing the wrong thing? Do we need to sell up and clear all our loans? Is that what the Bible is demanding? Well, in context, we need to understand Paul's intention is not to provide a theology of debt in one simple statement. Okay, that's not his intention. In fact, this phrase is actually used as a transition. Okay, when you preach, well, when you're taught to preach, transitions are very important because they keep a flow in the message. And if you've ever listened to a sermon and you think, man, that seems to be lots of random ideas. They aren't well connected. The preacher says one thing and then he says another and you think, whoa, that's random. That, that feels very clunky. It doesn't make sense. How does that connect? It's very likely that transitions are missing because they help you to transfer from one point to another. Okay? It helps it be logical and it helps the flow of the argument. And this is the function of this phrase in verse 8. Okay, if you remember, the importance of paying our taxes was a theme in the previous verse. And the topic of owing money is used as a transition to loving our neighbours. And we will see the particular transition in a moment. But understand, it's not Paul's intention to present a complete theology of borrowing money. Furthermore, it's vital that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Okay, that's the golden rules, golden rule of biblical interpretation. And you need to apply this in your own personal Bible study. Okay, how you understand a portion of Scripture needs to be in harmony with the rest of the Bible. And elsewhere in the Bible, you won't find anything that prohibits borrowing money. But it does provide some guidelines which implies it wasn't prohibited. Now, in the Old Testament, there were laws that govern the process of lending money. An Israelite was not to charge a fellow Israelite interest. Exorbitant interest rates, they were also forbidden. Usury is the term that the KJV uses to encapsulate the forbidden practices. But this implies that borrowing and debt was a common practice. Because if it wasn't practiced, why would you need regulations. Deuteronomy 24.10 says, when thou dost lend thy brother anything. Okay, that certainly implies that this was happening. It wasn't outlawed. 
Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount said, Matthew 5, 42, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Okay, and this gives inferred approval of borrowing. So the Bible certainly doesn't forbid borrowing and lending money. Okay, so you don't have to go to the bank manager tomorrow and, and sell your home. So it's like, phew, that would be bad news, wouldn't it? But the Bible does give some regulations. And there are some dangers, and we do need to be very discerning when it comes to debt, because debt can very easily dictate our lives. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So caution needs to be exercised, but the scriptures don't prohibit borrowing. So with that in mind... The point that Paul seems to be making with this passing comment is this. Okay, the word O in verse 8 is also used in verse 7. There it's translated Jews. And hence the point is, if you owe money to somebody, then pay it. Okay, if you have entered a loan agreement, make your repayments. If you owe a friend, if you owe a family member, pay it back. Okay, as Christians, we should repay any debts debts promptly and in accordance with the terms of the agreement okay that seems to be the sense but paul's real interest comes next remember i said this is acting as a transition so we are to pay off all our debts but there is one debt that we can never pay off and that is loving one another okay this is the observation that i want you to see we can never settle our love debt to others. We have a perpetual obligation. We have repayments that we need to make each and every day, every day for the rest of our lives. And no matter how much love we have shown, we never reach a point where we can cease to be loving. We never pay off the love loan. You know, I'm sure it must be a wonderful feeling when you pay your final mortgage Repayment, No more money owing to the bank. The, the home is yours. But that moment never arrives when it comes to loving others. Okay, we can never say, I have done all the loving I need to do. Okay, love for the Christian is a permanent obligation. Okay, even if we make daily repayments, we will always owe more. Why? Well, because we have been loved by a divine love. Jesus Christ loves you and I with an everlasting love, love that was proven beyond a doubt at the cross, where Jesus Christ, the God man, died in our place, paying the price for our sin. My friend, there is no greater demonstration, there's no greater declaration of love, the innocent dying for the guilty to provide salvation and, and having received that and continually receiving the love of Christ, we must show that. To others. Okay, love is the one debt for us that will always remain outstanding. So this is a key observation. The Christian is a love debtor. We who have been loved so greatly are to be a conduit that pours the love of Christ into the lives of others. We have a lifetime obligation to make constant love repayments. The debt is never settled. That's the observation. Now, let's consider two questions. And this will help us to determine what 
we owe and to whom we owe it. So question one, who are we to love? In verse eight, it says, love one another. And usually this refers to fellow believers, but in this context, it's much broader. And notice the second clause of verse eight, it says, loveth another. So that seems to be broader than one another. And verses nine and 10 make it clear how we are to interpret one another in verse eight. Notice the final phrase in verse nine, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And verse 10 also says neighbor. So we have an obligation to love our neighbor. And hopefully that triggers a question in your mind. Who is your neighbor? You know, as a kid, when, when I heard this preach, you've got to love your neighbor. I thought it was talking about those who live next door to me. And as a kid, no one lived next door to me. So I thought, hey, this is really easy. I can do this command. But that's not what it's talking about. Okay, what, what does it have in mind with this term neighbor? Well, this is a question asked of Jesus. And Jesus answered with a parable, very famous parable known as the Good Samaritan. And we learn from that parable and from the Greek term translated neighbor, that it speaks of the people that you meet and deal with every day. So wherever we go and whoever we interact with, we are to love that person. So we're not only obligated to love those in the family of God, but our fellow man as well. Okay, we could say this love is to be in the home, in the workplace, on the train, in the shopping center, in the meeting, at school, a university, on the sporting field, and so on. We're to extend this to our boss, to our colleagues, to our acquaintances, to those we don't get on with, to the stranger to the checkout operator, to those who live in our streets, to those who we sit next to on the train, those we meet in the local cafe. Okay, our neighbor is all people, especially those who we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. And the point that Jesus was making in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that one's nationality, religion, gender, socioeconomic status, that is irrelevant when it comes to determining who we are to love. Okay, and understand in New Testament times when this was written, that there were deep chasms between people, language, nationality, religion, gender, education, family, class. These all divided society. It split them like a log hit with an ax. But the gospel says we're to love all irrespective of these differences. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from. We as the ambassadors of Christ have a love debt to pay. Anyone that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives, we are to love them. There's no exceptions. Okay, so that answers the who question. But it then leads to another question. What does it mean to love our neighbor? You know, in this portion of scripture, the apostle links love and law, okay, puts them together. And that's not how people usually think, is it? Okay, rules and love are often considered as opposites. Okay, that's the message our society preaches. But we need to understand that love and law, they need each other. 
As one writer said, love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. So how should we love others? Well, we do this by keeping God's law. Okay, if we keep God's moral commandments, we will love our neighbours. You know, as has been stressed uh, time and time again throughout our study of Romans, God's law doesn't save us. You need to remember we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But when we're saved out of gratitude and enabled by the Holy Spirit, we will desire and strive to do what God wants us to do. And as we obey God's word, we will love our neighbor. And Paul gives some examples of this principle in verse 9. Okay, this will show how love fulfills the law. Okay, if one loves, they will not take another's husband or wife. Adultery and any sexual sin is not love. Likewise, if we love, we will not kill or harm another. If we love, we will not steal. If we love, we won't lie or deceive. If we love, we will not be jealous and envious of what other people possess. And this applies to all the moral horizontal commands. In fact, they're all summarized by both Paul and Jesus as loving your neighbor. Okay, when we love, we will refrain from doing these things to others. This is what love looks like in action. Okay, and what this tells us is that love is much more than a feeling or an emotion. Understand that love is a choice that you make. Okay, it's a verb, meaning it involves doing things. It's sacrificial service for the good and benefit of another. According to verse 10, it abstains from doing any ill or harm toward another. And love is bounded, it's governed by God's law. And anything that breaks God's rules is not love. And this is such a vital point. We need to understand this. Homosexuality is not love because it breaks God's law. If you're having sex before marriage, that's not love. Stop deceiving yourself. Lying to somebody is not loving. Being unkind, unforgiving, resentful, that's unloving. Okay, real love is in harmony with God's law and is proven by practical deeds. You know, this type of love, it prays for others. It forgives others. It manifests itself in direct and practical ways. It's ministering to people's needs. It's living out God's truth. It refuses to do things that will offend and hurt others. It will cover the sins of others. It will sacrifice one's own needs, wants, and desires for the benefit of another. It obeys God's commands. This is what we're called to do as believers. And we could summarize all of this very simply. Treat others like you treat yourself. That's what Paul says in verse 9, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now we need to understand this is not preaching the self-love, self-image, self-esteem message of today. That's typically a false gospel. You know, as one commentator said, Jesus spoke of the first and second commandment, but never a third. Meaning, he said love of God and love of others. He doesn't say love of self. Because real love is selfless and sacrificial. 
And hence the point that Paul's making here is that it's natural for man to love ourselves. Okay, we have a high view of ourselves. We care about ourselves and we still love ourselves despite knowing all about our flaws and failures. And we are to treat others like we treat ourselves. Okay, so this is what it means to love our neighbor. Okay, godly love will abstain from doing things to others that would break God's law. And it actively seeks to do good things. And this is a predetermined choice. And it happens whether one deserves it or not. Okay, this is what it means to love our neighbor. Remembering our neighbor is anyone that we encounter in our day-to-day lives. So we've thought through one observation, two questions. Let's now consider three commands. Okay, in this closing section of this chapter, it's like a blast of a trumpet, that there's a real sense of urgency. The alarm has sounded. And Paul says it's time to wake up. And the return of Christ comes into focus. Now, throughout the New Testament, the doctrine of Christ's return is used as a motivator to pursue personal holiness. Okay, two examples. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, so Christ is returning. Then verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So the thought of seeing Christ, of him returning, is meant to motivate us to pursue purity. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Okay, so that the return of Christ, okay, which is meant in the phrase, the end of all things is at hand. This is meant to stoke our fire of desire for prayer and loving each other. Okay, so the return of Christ is meant to motivate personal holiness. And this, as a motivator, makes much sense. And you, perhaps an illustration will be helpful. Now think of the bride who is about to get married. Okay, often there's much concern leading up to the wedding, getting all of the girly beauty stuff ready and choosing the perfect dress and all of the accessories, and then the big day arrives, and she has to wake up ridiculously early and have all the makeup done and the hair done. But, but when the moment comes, the bride looks stunning. Okay, she's prepared for the big day. And my friend, we are the bride of Christ, and we should be prepared for his coming. And the thing is, it could well be at any moment. That is why we should be striving for holiness. This is what Paul has in mind in verse 11. He says, knowing the time. Okay, this doesn't mean that they knew it was 1140. Okay, it's a different Greek word. But rather, they knew that they lived in the time where Jesus could return at any moment. And we still live in that time. And in light of that, okay, we need to wake up. We need to stop being spiritually lazy and sleepy because our salvation is closer today than ever before. As I mentioned at the table, this has the glorification aspect in mind. That the completion 
of our salvation is closer now than ever before. And my friend, time is short. And hence we need to live for Christ. Okay, this is what Paul is getting at in this closing section. But the question that's a little tricky to determine is whether Paul is using this to motivate us to love our neighbor exclusively or if he includes everything from chapter 12 and verse 1. And I'm not convinced that one can be dogmatic either way. You know, I'm comfortable with it including everything from chapter 12. But I'd like to focus on what is just being unfolded. Okay, the imminent return of Christ is to motivate us to love others. Okay, because remember, Jesus could return at any time. Okay, Jesus could return today and take us from this world and we would no longer have the opportunity to love those that we meet in our lives. Okay, the chance that we have today to love somebody could well be our last chance. Okay, we mightn't get another opportunity. And hence that ought to, to, to wake us up, to snap us out of our slumber and with God's help strive to love others because... We may not have many more opportunities to have an impact in their lives. And, you know, as I thought about this over the last couple of days, okay, we profess to believe in the imminent return of Christ. Okay, that, that's our theology. And yet so often we live like we're going to be here for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Okay, you know, how much would our lives change how much more would we interact with others? How much more would we love others if we truly lived as though today was our last day? And it could be, okay, if we believe in the imminent return of Christ. So I encourage you to, to meditate on that point and to allow your eschatology beliefs to govern how you treat others in the day-to-day Moments. Okay, our, our theology is not just meant to be something we can chat about over a cup of tea, particularly our eschatology. Okay, it's meant to shape, it's meant to govern how we live right now. So having gotten our attention, having sounded the alarm about the return of Christ, Paul gives three rapid-fire pairs of commands. And in each pair there's a positive and a negative. Look at verse 12. Okay, we're told we need to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, we need to walk honestly and not walk in the way of writing and drunkenness and chambering and wantedness. Those two terms speak of sexual sins. And then on the end is a surprising inclusion, strife and envy. And then in verse 14, we're told we need to put on Christ. And put off making provision for the flesh. And the analogy in Paul's mind is putting off certain clothing and putting on other clothes. You know, each day you and I dress appropriately according to what we desire to achieve for the day. Okay, if you're going to work, you're going to dress one way. If you're going to the gym, you'll dress another way. If you're going to be out working in the backyard, you will dress another way. Okay, and each day we get dressed spiritually and we need to have clothes on that will help us love others. And verse 14 is really a helpful summary. Okay, we, we need to lay aside everything that produces sin. Don't, don't make any provision for it, but rather put on Christ. 
Be like him. Treat others how Jesus treats you. Ask that cliche question. What would Jesus do in this situation? And understand how effective we are in winning our neighbors to Christ or, or having a positive impact on them is decided by how well we put on Christ and put off the flesh. And this closing section with the three pairs of commands stresses the urgency of the situation. As one commentator said, each ache, each pain, each gray hair, each new wrinkle, each funeral is a reminder that it is later than it has ever been before. It is time to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the challenge. Time is running out. Okay, this is not something you can think, well, in five years' time, I'll, I'll start thinking about my neighbors. I've, I've got too much going on in my life now. I'll, I'll do this when I, when I get older. No, we need to be doing this right now, my friend. There's, there's no time to waste. We who have been loved immeasurably by Jesus need to be loving our neighbors. We, we need to be known as people who are kind and caring to all. Okay, brethren, there's an urgency. Okay, there's an urgency. And, and I trust you're feeling that weight. I trust that the Holy Spirit is pressing that into your heart because time is short. We need to wake up. We need to get switched on spiritually. Live for the Lord because that's how you love your neighbor. And that is our reasonable service in light of all that Jesus has done for us. So our foundations are laid. There was one observation which stressed that we can never stop loving others. We never fulfill the obligation. Two questions which identified that we are to love everybody that we encounter. And we love them by obeying God's law. It's practical. It's sacrificial. And the three commands all highlight the urgency of the situation. We, we need to wake up. We, we need to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Okay, we who are loved with an everlasting and infinite love need to extend that to others. That's our duty. For gospel-shaped and governed love to be poured out upon others through us like a refreshing shower of rain. And if we do this, and we need God's help with this, but if we do this, it will change things. This will transform our home. It will transform our families, transform our workplaces, our sporting clubs. It will change people's lives. Okay, th this has tremendous potential for great things to be accomplished by God. But what are some very practical things that we can implement today and throughout this week as we seek to love our neighbor like we love ourselves? Okay, here are some practical suggestions. Help somebody who is struggling. Keep your head up and eyes open. If somebody drops something, offer to help them. If someone is obviously struggling, offer assistance. If somebody is wounded or sick or hurt, don't ignore them. Okay, be the good Samaritan. Be engaging in conversation. Okay, be friendly. Be courteous. Talk to others that you encounter throughout the day. Endeavor to say something nice to, to the barista at the cafe. Say hello to the stranger as you go for a walk. Endeavor to, to get to know people who you don't know so well. Show some interest. Hospitality. 
Be, be willing to invite others into your home. Go and get a coffee. Have a meal with someone that you don't know that well, whether it be someone at work, a neighbor, a teammate. That's a wonderful way to show love and care. Okay, time. Time is your most valuable commodity. You can't purchase any more. And hence, to give somebody the time of day, sacrifice hours from your life for their benefit. That's a clear manifestation of love. Do right, not wrong. We need to follow God's rules as he's laid out in the Bible. When we are genuinely loving, we will do the right thing. Understand, sin is never loving. You know, send the text, email, or make the phone call. Check in with your colleagues. Check in with your boss or your neighbor or some other acquaintance. If they have told you something, check in to see how it's all going. Be quick to forgive. Love does not harbor bitterness. It does not hold a grudge and refuse to move forward. Extending forgiveness is a powerful way to show love to others. Don't be quick to anger. Okay, there will be people who infuriate you. There are some people who seem to have a special gift of driving us crazy. But being snappy and snarly and even responding in rage, that's not going to help you love that person. Don't be judgmental. Okay, don't be quick to make condemning judgment calls about people. Don't allow external appearance to determine how you treat somebody. Be willing to have conversations even if they're outside of your comfort zone. Don't be envious. Okay, jealousy and envy destroys love. We need to be happy for the success and progress of others even if it means we missed out. We saw in chapter 12, rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those who weep. Help somebody, okay? get beside somebody, help them finish a task, even if it's not your responsibility. If someone's struggling, lend them a hand. Pray. Okay? One of the most loving things we can do is pray for those that we encounter throughout our week. Okay? Bring our boss, our colleagues, our neighbors, our teammates before the Lord in prayer. Because understand, we will pray about what we love the most. Share the gospel. This too is one of the most loving things that we can do. In fact, I would argue it's quite unloving to not share it. The gospel is what everybody needs more than anything else. And if we love them, we should share it. And be friendly and caring. Okay, but be the person that is friendly to everybody. Reaches out to others. Be, be that person who oozes care and kindness. Be the one who talks to everybody and is genuinely friendly. There's 14 suggestions, and there are many, many more. Okay, and here's the thing. Our love for others is one of the clearest indicators of our love for God. Okay, our love for others is one of the clearest indicators of our love for God. Because anybody can say, I love God. But how we treat others is the true indicator of of the depth of our love for God. Please think that through. Meditate on that. What does your love for others, which is very tangible and measurable, say about your love for God? And as we leave here, what, what are some ways that with God's help, you're going to show the love of Christ to those whom you encounter this week? Okay, think about it. Think of two or three ways in your mind that you are going 
to do this week. Okay, perhaps there are some obvious failures that need to be repented of. There are some things in your mind you say, man, I did not do that well. Okay, confess that. And may it be never said of us as Christians that we don't care. Okay, that, that's a terrible indictment on us as believers. And may God help us to love our neighbours as we love ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word. And as we come to the, the end of this sermon, please help us. We, we all need to get better at this, that there's room for growth and improvement in the lives of each and every one of us. And, and help us to be mindful of this throughout uh, the rest of this day and heading into to the new week. Help us to, to be thinking of ways that, that we can love others more. Uh, because this is a way that we can have a real and lasting impact uh, in the lives of others. Please help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.